it's interesting. Everybody that wants to imagine what healthcare will be in 100 years will tell you stories of technology. And what I'm extremely curious about is how are we going to care for and about each other in 100 years? Hello and welcome to The Recovery, the podcast about how we can make medicine more sustainable for people and the planet. It's produced by Cochrane Sustainable Healthcare and co-published by the BMJ. I'm Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, and my co-host is Ray Moynihan from Bond University in Australia. Thanks, Fee. It's a pleasure to be here. And today on The Recovery, we bring you the voice of Professor Victor Montori, who I think you've known for some time, Fee. Yes, I have. Victor Montori is a diabetes specialist trained in Peru, who's worked at the Mayo Clinic in the United States for 25 years. He has a global reputation for promoting a nonviolent revolution in healthcare. That would be a patient revolution, he says, to achieve compassion and solidarity and careful and kind care. I think it was about 10 years ago, actually, that Victor and colleagues started talking about what they called the cumulative burden of treatment that patients have to bear. And in a landmark piece in the BMJ, they imagined a whole new approach to healthcare, which they called minimally disruptive medicine. The three of us, um, uh, we, we basically found that 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 way of thinking, which was, my goodness, we medicine needs to advance the patient goals, but it has to do it in a way that um, that is very sensitive to the cumulative burden of treatment that we uh, we impose on on people and their families, that the healthcare footprint on their lives, and so how might we do this in a way that is minimally disruptive of the lives that people are trying to live and of the loves that they're trying to pursue, um, and uh, because I, as I as I often remind audiences when I give presentations, um, you know I have three boys and I always tell them that I, you know I've always asked them what do you want to do when you grow up and none of them ever have said that I want to grow up to be the perfect patient and so clearly people live to have other lives not to be great patients and so the healthcare system has to uh, do that heavy lifting of adapting. You're talking really about unsustainable demands on the patient, I think, and trying to make those demands more sustainable and more reasonable uh, and, and, and allow um, a, a minimally disruptive medicine. What, what do you think are the key drivers that are driving those unsustainable demands on, on people? I, I'm sure there's many, but what are the key ones? Well, so, uh, Ray, I'm going to pull back a little bit and point out that industrial healthcare, which is how we're referring to the way we currently process patients in almost every healthcare system in the world, um, places unsustainable demands, uh, untenable demands, uh, intolerable demands on the people at the front lines of care. So they do it on clinicians, and we also do it on patients. And um, on clinicians, the, the, the result has been the reports almost from everywhere of burnout. You know, people um, uh, unable to care in the ways they would like to care because the demands on their, on, on their time particularly their time with patients, exceed their capacity to do so. Um, and the supports that they have are minimal. And that then translates to patients, particularly patients with chronic conditions. Patients with chronic conditions not only are the most common 
type of adult patient that comes to the medical center, but also there are patients that tend to come through multiple doors. So they are they are the, the canary in the coal mine as, as they concentrate all the toxicities of the system in themselves and the incoordination between different services, different specialists, the, um, the incoordination of information across as well as the accumulation of individual tasks. I mean, it, it's almost comical when I see my, I'm a diabetes specialist, so I see patients sometimes with diabetes and ulcers of other chronic conditions and they come in and they, they almost with tears in their eyes, they tell me, you know, I just came from the nephrologist who told me to avoid, you know, salt and, and protein. And I just came to see your dietitian who just told me I shouldn't eat the carbs. And all of a sudden the patients are left with different flavors of cardboard to eat. Right. And that, and that, that's, no, there's no quality of life in that restriction. And everybody of course makes those recommendations with incredible degrees of confidence that are not supported by the avail- best available evidence. How much of this, uh, what you've just described, Victor, is a systems problem of the way in which care is organised? And how much is it actually about too much medicine that there were actually, you know, there are things people being asked to do that that um, just are not not helpful or even potentially harmful? Yeah, I I, I think it's um, I think is a combination. Well, I see it as a, as a as a single problem, and it's the problem of not enough care. Um, and I think that when people focus on care, both at the way they organize their, their services, but also on the way care plans are developed, co-created ideally with the patient, um, that there is not enough care. There's not enough competence and compassion in the organization. There are other objectives. At the healthcare system level, there are objectives of efficiency, of value, of doing more with less. At the level of the of the patient, there are objectives of meeting the targets, of, of complying with the guidelines, um, which are dis- designed for people like this, but not for this person. And I think that there is a, there is a, there is a, not a problem of just too much medicine or just a problem of of disorganized or, or health systems organized on the basis of different values. I think there's a there's a fundamental lack of focus on on caring for people in ways that um, that make uh, intellectual, emotional, and practical sense. Uh, intellectual sense in the sense that you know it, it is an evidence based response to the problems that they have. Emotional sense that takes into account the emotional components of this, the problematic situation in which they, they live and, and it feels like the right thing to do now. And practical sense, this thing that, you know, can you implement these pro- programs of care in the chaotic and challenging and, and uh, unpredictable situations of your life? And, and crafting those, those programs of care takes time. And of course, you know, our healthcare system finds that the use of time for that purpose to be a, a symptom of inefficiency. And uh, so I think it's a combination of, of industrialized healthcare, uh, too much medicine, and fundamentally at the root of it, not enough care. This is a theme that you pull out very strongly in, in your book, Why We Revolt. And you talk about healthcare having been corrupted or, or its mission having been corrupted and, and it has stopped caring. Can you talk about that? Tell us what that means. Yeah, so I think it, it's it's um, we we have healthcare do a number of functions. Uh, we have healthcare take care of our budgets. We have healthcare promote health, promote even public health. Uh, in the United States, there is a strong emphasis, for instance, to manage prediabetes as a clinical problem, where patients have to be referred to their GP uh, to be diagnosed with prediabetes and then sent back to the community for coaching and 
lifestyle changes. So we even take healthy people and processing uh, them in that way. So we are asking healthcare to be a public health agency. We're, we're asking um, a healthcare to be a source of, um, of income for investors in for-profit systems. Um, we're asking healthcare to do a number of things. Um, and in asking healthcare to do all those things, healthcare has forgotten or has abandoned its fundamental mission, its fundamental goal, which is to care. And um, that, to me, is a corruption in the function of healthcare, and it's seen everywhere. Um, uh, it, it was very dramatic in my country, in Peru, when I was uh, growing up as a physician, so to speak, when I was in medical school, where we, you know my country was in the you know was uh, self-destructing in because of terrorism and, and hyperinflation, and um, and you simply couldn't care for people simply because there were not no resources, and there was there was actual corruption. You know, people were stealing from the healthcare system. So there was incompetence, corruption, and poverty. Really, the final common pathway of that was that there was not enough time or resources to take care for anyone. Now you come to the United States, and there's, of course, plenty of resources. And what's extracting the opportunity to do this from the point of care is profit. And there's so much profit extraction that by the time the resources make it to the point of care, there is really not enough to care for people. There's always enough to do procedures that are themselves highly reimbursed. So you can make more profit, but there is never enough to take care of people uh, who have who are chronically ill, in which no procedures uh, are going to happen. And then you go to publicly funded systems, and you see that the same process, the final common pathway of reduction in care and distraction of resources occurs through austerity policies, where not enough is put into the health system to actually be able to care for folks. So that you know, poverty, corruption, uh, disorganization, incompetence, profit-seeking uh, and austerity, all of them seem to have a final common pathway where there is not enough care. And that corrupts the mission of healthcare. And we then have healthcare do all sorts of other things, taking for granted the fact that the fundamental reason why patient and clinician come together, why patient comes to the healthcare system, is to address uh, their problematic human situation, seeking compassion and uh, seeking competence. And you call in the book for a revolution of compassion and solidarity, of um, unhurried conversations, of careful and kind care. What would that look like? Can you paint a picture of what that would be like? Well, first of all, I have to, in these days, specify that that revolution ought to be and has to be, and there's no other way to be but nonviolent. And uh, in it, it is but it doesn't mean frictionless because there's so many, many interests uh, established in the system as is. But it is a revolution in the sense that it needs to change the fundamentals. So it's a fundamental change that is not going to come from clinician behavior. It's not simply going to come from changing the incentives of how we pay. It requires all of us to think of healthcare anew and that we do everything from the way we finance it, from the way we organize it, from the way we set it up, and from the way patients um, come and look for it. All of that needs to be uh, rethought and reconsidered so that the end result is, is care, not by accident, but careful and kind care routinely. And I think to kind of implement that vision, to start with, I think you're talking about or promoting the idea of, of patient revolution clinics. I think that's the language that you've been using. What does it mean? What would these clinics look like? I, I guess you're, you're developing them now, uh, Victor. So what would they look like? 
Yeah, so in the spirit of, of co-creation and the spirit of working with communities and, and working with partners, um, I have to leave it a little open. But it, but what would the experience feel like might be the for clinicians, and the, I use that word to describe anybody with the privilege of being at the bedside of the patient, um, and for the supporting staff uh, of those clinics, it will feel like a place that trusts them. So you've gotten trained, you've gone, you, and you, you're now going to be trusted. So when they encounter anybody walking into the clinic, there is no wrong door. There is no wrong person. There is no, not my job. But there are people with autonomy and, uh, and being trusted by their colleagues in a position to actually respond to patient needs. Um, it will feel like a place where if there is a disappointment, if there is death, if there is uh, a tragedy, this is a place where that staff can come together and support each other. Their resilience doesn't come from their individual psychology, but it comes from their ability to lean on each other, to recover from the bad situation and move on from there. Um, It would feel like a place that has broad hallways so that as clinicians come out of, of, of offices where they've interacted with patients, they can talk to each other. They can share clinical knowledge. They can share emotional uh, difficulties. Um, moving on to what the patient's experience will look like as they come in, the place knows them. The, the people that they are know who they are. Uh, ideally, know their family. You know, in fact, may, somebody in the practice may have been at their home and may have uh, shared tea or whatnot. And um, and then there is an opportunity not only to be recognized but also to to be welcome and to be ready to engage in a, in, a, in an encounter uh, that is that feels unhurried. It doesn't mean slow. It doesn't mean long. It just means that we set up a, th- a rhythm. We set up a tempo, which is the tempo of care, uh, the, the, the right r- rhythm for the music to be danceable by this particular uh, people. And that we, um, of course, it, there's great technology supporting all this stuff, but technology is way in the background. It's doing all the, all the work that doesn't require the ingenuity and the emotional investment um, in connecting with people so that their relationship evolves, a relationship that provides resilience also when patients experience disappointment. And is this what you mean by the democratization of care or or creating common care or is that something different? That's something different. Um, So common care, um, so I think the, the, the immediate reaction that most people feel when they hear what I just described is like, there's no way we can do this, right? There's just too much demand, too few health professionals, too few clinicians. We will, we can't spend our time and so forth. So, and I think then one realizes that there's, we have placed again on the healthcare system, too many functions and patients and individuals, people are coming to the healthcare system even before they need the healthcare system. Um, and we, we have trained them to come for their well baby check or their adult checkup and all these other things where unnecessary screeners and tests and procedures are, are then uh, offered to them, sucking uh, uh, ability to respond to the people who are uh, sick, but maybe more uh, reasonable in their use of the system. And so 
how the, that's not the patient's fault that we kept telling people don't show up when you don't need it or we're going to punish you with something. That's not it. You know, they're not children, right? We've, we've basically told them, here's an open door, please use it. And you're entitled to it. So please, by all means, use it. And then we have abandoned the fundamentals at the, at the community level that make a community and its members healthier. And so I, I would like to see, yes, we need to reinstate adequate budgets for care, for health care. But we also have to look at the communities and the assets that the communities have and think about how might we as a community make our own communities healthier so that our members don't need to overuse, don't need to create unnecessary demands on the healthcare system. And, and that means, you know, caring for uh, and about each other. It means creating spaces where we can spend time instead of spending money. Um, we need to create um, uh, opportunities for collaboration and connection. Uh, we need to have common tasks. We need to maybe have uh, community activities where we make our parks you know, more uh, safer and, and more beautiful and, and, and things of that nature that, that brings us together, that address mental health at the community level without having to medicalize it, that address loneliness at the community level without having to medicalize it. And, and so I think if we can have that common care, that basic, um, social living that made us, uh, you know, overcome the Neanderthals. Uh, if we can do that, um, then I think we can give enough space for healthcare to care better. So, Victor, this is really um, potentially shifting resource and attention away from the, the medical, the biomedical and medical um, sphere uh, into what we would call public health, uh, community building, education, housing, green spaces, um, all of those things uh, that, 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 that the medical uh, expenses suck away resource from. Uh, you're making it a zero-sum game between um, two different ways of caring. Um, there is a potential zero-sum game with the whole budget, but that budget includes a lot of aspects that are not uh, directed at caring, right? In fact, they're directing at injuring and harming other people or harming the environment, right? So there is an opportunity uh, at a political level to really address our, our priorities and, and think about how might we um, um, shift those priorities towards um, human flourishing. And I I think in the budget of human flourishing, we will find a pocket for healthcare and we will find a pocket for common care. And I wouldn't be too too upset if the pocket for common care is much, much bigger than the pocket for healthcare. What you're saying reminds me of part of the, the wording in the promotion of the patient revolution clinics, which I think talks uh, says something like, not all suffering demands a medical response and not all care must be professional. That seems to be in tune with what you're saying. Yes. Well, it better be. <laughs> but uh, yes, absolutely. And that's in fact the, the case there. The professionalization of care is the privatization of care. When care is a fundamental human activity that occurs in the, in the public space, right? In the public space of our homes, in the public space of our families, but also in the public space of our communities. By privatizing it, by making it professional, we have um, offloaded that responsibility from each other. Well, I think that is very problematic. And if we look at the way we're relating to each other, particularly at this time of the pandemic, where everybody's under severe stress, our compassion is, is stressed severely by, by, by the pandemic and the response to the pandemic. It, the, the hurt is obvious. Um, in where I live, the, the school board meetings, which are community settings where the, the community sort of shapes the, the way public education is run, 
are now shouting matches where people are wearing t-shirts with slogans and they're covering their faces to make fun of of other people and 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 ridicule mu- uh, Muslims in town or to insult um, uh, uh, foreigners and and I mean it's a terrible it's it's filled with uh, with hate you see all those videos of of a humble person behind the counter asking somebody to put their mask on and they're getting insulted or or beaten up or killed so so our societies are hurting and and and, and they're hurting I think from a lack of care for and about each other from a lack of a common common goal and so i i think we need to deprofessionalize care as communities uh, it is really a democratic uh, grassroots effort to reconstitute uh, what we want to uh, life to be as a as an opportunity for flourishing there's an there's a whole ethics of care that speaks about care being the method by which we make our our world a better place to live in. And that world is the social world which in which we relate, but also, of course, the material world, the planet in which we live. So, so care, I think, becomes a central ideology, if I may, um, both for the problem of global warming and the problem of unsustainable healthcare. And Victor, how then does that happen? Um, this, this sounds wonderful. And I think people listening will, will really engage and say, yes, that's what we do need to see. But how do you move from identifying a, a problem like this, massive problem, toward actually changing things? What do people have to do at different levels? Well, I think this is part of the challenge. Um, uh, I'm reading a little book that uh, actually a patient advocate um, gifted me, which is called uh, The the impossible will take a while. And it is, um, I think it's based on the lyrics of a song um, by Billie Holiday. And um, and it's a series of small, you know, brief writings of, you know, very remarkable people um, in which that, that took on a big, big challenge, took on what seemed like an impossible situation and then got going. And, um, and, and of course, nothing really happened for a while. And then something happened. And it's very hard to go back and say which of those things, which of those people were instrumental, what did they do to make it happen? But they did many things. And eventually the cumulative uh, impact of their, <clears throat> of their small contributions um, switched, you know, flipped the switch. In my own lifetime, uh, I've seen, for instance, the legalization of, uh, of um, same-sex marriage as, as something that, was, that went from impossible, that's never going to happen, to, oh, it's here already. And how did it happen? And it's very hard to actually go back and look at the roots of what it, it was almost like a series of cumulative events. And I, I'm very inspired by um, Eduardo Galeano, the Uruguayan writer who, who uh, um, told the story of this Argentinian uh, movie maker in, in Colombia, um, where, you know, some student asked this Argentinian guy, you know, why do we need utopias? And and the, the the movie the movie maker basically responded, you need utopias like you need the horizon. You know, you take five steps towards the horizon, the horizon takes five steps back. You take ten steps towards the horizon, the horizon take, takes ten steps back. So so why do you need the horizon? Why do you need utopias for that to to walk to get walking? And I think we need to we need to create a movement and then trust the creativity of people on the ground to develop the specific steps towards um, uh, careful and kind care, towards a revolution of care. I love this talk of utopia. You've got the right audience here, Victor, with Fiona and I doing this interview. And I think we often feel like we are we are dreaming, we are we are having visions of of, of a sort of a quite different kind of health system with all sorts of reform in it. 
and the reality is kind of different in a way. <laughs> Things do move very slowly. So I guess I want to ask you a quite a tough question, and that is, you know, you've been working in this space now for quite some time. Do you feel like you're having an impact? Do you feel like the ideas that you've been promulgating and writing about are having an impact? And if so, what is that impact? Um, yeah, it is a difficult question, right? Because it forces the timeline of this movement into the lifetime of, uh, of an individual. And I think the other thing we have, we must learn from history is that we cannot predict the impact of our actions. And, um, it may be that the actions that we take today have no impact at all, uh, during our lifetimes and that in the book, I use the metaphor of building cathedrals, right? That the, the people that designed those cathedrals almost never saw them completed, but they believed that their community could actually finish it. And um, and I think that's the story here. I think that we, we you know, we are, I mean, we're, I'm not building anything from scratch. I mean, I'm borrowing and stealing and, you know, uh, kneeling and standing on, 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 on other people's shoulders, whether they were giants or not. Right. And, and we are just building on each other here. And I think to the extent that we can uh, dream together, even if our dreams differ a little bit, if we move in this general direction, the eventually we will get there. The, the timeline that I, that I discuss with our group is not in a decade is not the 25. It's what happens by 2121. And it's actually, you know, in a hundred years from today, it's interesting. Everybody that wants to imagine what healthcare will be in a hundred years will tell you stories of technology. And what I'm extremely curious about is how are we going to care for and about each other in a hundred years? I think that's that's where the imagination needs to needs to work hard at. How are we, because we get to build that. Because we come before. Now, we may not have the final say. We may not be able to, 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 to sign our names at the bottom of the painting, but we get to put a brushstroke on it, right? And so the question that we have for each one of the people listening to this is, you know, what brushstroke are you choosing to, to put on this painting? And um, we may never see the finished product. It may, the, our, our timelines on this, on this earth are maybe too short for such an endeavor. And I think that's one of the things that makes this really feel impossible is that we're used to strategic plans of a quarter or a year or five years plan. Um, but really what we're building here is a new way of relating. And that might be a hundred years plan minimum. Someone said if you're working on a problem that you think you're going to solve in your lifetime, you're not thinking big enough. Well, I think most organizations and most individuals um, ought to be um, ought to be looking for things that probably are never going to be finished, right? And I think the, the task of making um, this world more hospitable, not just to those with resources, but uh, to the people that we don't see, um, to give... To when somebody is born anywhere, that they have a shot, that they have an opportunity uh, to live flourishing lives, uh, regardless of where they live. I mean, think about that. The fact that they're going to wake, you know, grow up in a world that is sustainable. I mean, that, each of those things seem like really big, big ideas. Um, but the big idea of care is that all of that needs to be achieved at the same time. All of that needs to occur in the next century, or of course, some of them have to occur much sooner if we're going to have any shot. And, um, and, and the fundamental thing that in healthcare we have to offer to that big, big, big idea and that big, big plan is our 
you know, tradition, our, our history, our, our philosophy, that it's built on the notion that this human being, because of their training and their position, can be put in place in that very private spot of suffering, in these very dark moments of people's lives, to hold your hand and help you get out of that that situation so you can go back to your community feeling finish your healing and then move on with the rest of your community to a better better future that is an incredible thing that we developed medicine is an incredible human development healthcare is a corruption of that development so we need to that's why we need a revolution to turn turn away from industrial healthcare and towards careful and kind care for everyone victor people listening to this will be thinking what can I do? What, what can I as an individual do, you know, today, tomorrow, next week? What would you say to them? What brush stroke can I put on the canvas? Yeah, and, and that, is, that is always a difficult question because I hope that people listening come from all different walks of life and in, people in different situations, I think, are in a position to do different things. Um, as, a, as, as a member of your family, make sure you're taking care of your family. As a member of your community, um, participate in community life productively. Uh, don't hide uh, from uh, what's happening. Uh, show up to community uh, um, uh, opportunities to meet and so forth and be, uh, be a caring voice in that community. Drown out the voices of, the, you know, of, of, of hate and, 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 and uh, discord um, and engage. Uh, disagree if you want, debate if you want, but do so in a caring fashion. Um, Give teach your children hope. Um, hope doesn't come from being an optimist, but hope comes, as Solnit said, from recognizing that perhaps the future maybe has a shot at being better, but that shot is related to what we do today and that every one of our children has an opportunity to also do something, perhaps small, that can make, that improves the opportunity, that improves the, the likelihood that that future might be better. Um, as a, as a, as if you, if there's an opportunity for you to shape policy, if you can run in elections, run for elections. Uh, it's easy to criticize the people that have run and, and to notice that they run for all the wrong reasons. Well, then run for the right reasons. Be active and engage yourself in that way. Be, civic life is essential for care. Um, if you are in healthcare, of course, you know, thank you for your, for your service. The to be in healthcare today is a is a really really difficult uh, career, and many of our colleagues um, have lost their lives uh, fighting this pandemic, or or have become chronically ill uh, because of their care. And um, so this is very very difficult. And asking you to do more feels uh, indecent, inappropriate, inelegant. Um, and yet, uh, you are uh, responsible for your professional activities. You are professional, and professionals are not technicians. Professionals are responsible for the downstream consequences of their actions. So do your thousand acts of rebellion and spend that extra minute with your patient. If your patient starts crying, hold their hand and wait. Silence is essential. Give it to them. And if a, if a, a project of care, a, a treatment, a test is unnecessary, tie your hands. Uh, don't do it. You know that's the right thing to do and you'll feel better if you don't do it, even if your manager may not recognize that today. Um, at eth at eth ethically, with compassion and, and, and caring ways, and, um, and be competent. I tell this to medical students, you know, uh, 
they get disheartened when they hear me. And I said, no, no, no. I mean, you came into training with all the compassion in your heart, um, but then the training is going to make you want to belong and you're going to try to imitate the people that you meet, um, imitate their competence, but hold on to your compassion because it's richer than what you'll find on the field. Um, let's maintain and cultivate that compassion. Let's find opportunities, not just to discuss difficult cases in our rounds or, or to show off our, our intellectual prowess, but make sure that we have compassion rounds, opportunities to refill each other's tanks. And then when we, when we look at our, 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 the way we work, not just focus on the efficiency of the way we work, but on the elegance of the way we work, that, we've, that we are unhurried in our interactions with each other, that we are unhurried in our interactions with our patients, because in that unhurriedness, we give care a chance. And so there, that's a list of things that potentially some people can do in the, in the social sphere and in the practical sphere. As an organization, the patient revolution is seeking um, partners uh, that will help us try out this in practice, uh, prototype it, co-create it with communities and professionals, and begin to create these demonstrations. Because as you point out in your questions highlight, Ray, we have a difficulty imagining something different. And the idea of these demonstration clinics is an opportunity for people to go, oh, that's what, it's, that's what it feels like. Oh, I want more of that. And then one day it will become the irresistible default. Victor, in a previous interview we did, there was talk about the amount of effort and cost and harm potentially uh, of end-of-life care and, and, and the amount of resources that goes into to it and the amount of distress that is prolonged in patients. What, what's your sense of how we could tackle that problem that, that industrialised medicine has, has brought in, that people can be kept alive for much longer than, than is kind for them and good for society? The end of life, particularly when it doesn't happen suddenly, the end of life is a um, is an opportunity for people to write the last page of their book, of their life book, and you would like that last page to be written in their in their handwriting, you know, in their own ink. Um, um, and and industrial healthcare robs people of that opportunity, takes over the writing. And write something else that um, that perhaps is uh, formulaic, and fails to capture the creativity and imagination of the person who is going through that transition. It's about making sense of this of this end, um, which is something that clinicians may or may not be ready for. But by clinicians here, I expand to include chaplains and spiritual people and other folks that can be at the bedside of the patient and their family to try to round this up, finish this off. And it doesn't have to be, when I talk about that bedside, it doesn't have to be a hospital bedside. It doesn't have to be a home bedside because we shouldn't impose this on people if they're not ready either. But it should be the, the bedside of their choice. It could be at the edge of a cliff looking at, looking at the sunset. But when we are with them, this is a moment of deep human connection. This is a moment of communion. It's perhaps the ultimate opportunity to express our compassion, to express, to express our competence uh, as professionals, but also to allow for that unhurried process to go on where we, um, where we discover together the meaning of, the meaning of life um, for this particular person. And that, what I just described, contrasts in so many ways with the beeping of the ICU monitor, with the invasiveness of the arterial line, uh, with the monitoring of the blood gases. 
we have we have an opportunity there not just to humanize the ICU stay, which our group has you know participated in, but to really think through as a society in conversations that we currently cannot have about what is what is the purpose of our planet, what is the purpose of our community, what are the purposes of our lives, and of course, how do we prepare better for the end of them. Um, there's so much to discuss there, Fee, but um, I think at the end of the, of the day for healthcare professionals, the end of life is a stress test of our professionalism, is a stress test of our compassion and um, of our ability not only to, to, to give uh, care, but also to withhold uh, the, what is unnecessary, what is superfluous, uh, what, is, um, what we know very well how to use but we, we end up overusing and uh, in a way that contributes to unsustainable healthcare and to, um, um, to a corruption in the mission of healthcare. Thank you for that poetry, Victor. Uh, it's been wonderful. It's been a real, real treat, Victor, to hear you speak and to, to get your thoughts on all these very important issues. You've been listening to The Recovery today with Professor Victor Montori from the Mayo Clinic in the United States. A big thank you to Cochrane Sustainable Healthcare's Minna Johansson and Dina Muscat-Meng for production, Duncan Jarvis at the BMJ for podcasting assistance, and to sound editor Jan Mutz. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>